Well, a few years ago, I attended a leadership summit at which uh, Jim, Jim Collins was a, a keynote speaker. Collins has distinguished himself over the past several decades as a skilled research technician into the principles differentiating thriving companies from those that are struggling to survive. He has written two bestsellers, Built to Last and Good to Great. At the conference that I attended, he was presenting his latest book, Great by Choice. The lead-up to the book included a team of more than 20 researchers working with Collins to study companies that rose to greatness in environments characterized by rapid shifts and tumultuous circumstances that leaders could not predict or control. The findings of this research, which formed the content of his book, revealed some uncommon surprises. For instance, the best leaders were not more risk-taking, more visionary, and more creative than the others with whom they were compared. Nor did innovation by itself turn out to be the trump card in a chaotic and uncertain world. Following the belief that leading in a fast world always requires fast decisions and fast actions is a good way to get killed. And the truly great companies change less in reaction to a radically changing world than the comparison companies. The bottom line from the research challenged conventional wisdom when it comes to thriving in hectic times. It pointed to the conclusion that greatness happens by choice, not by chance. It may be said that life, like great companies, thrives not by chance, but by the choices that are made. The reality is that all of us make choices each and every day of our lives. We choose whether to get out of bed when the alarm goes off or to hit it and roll over and go back to sleep. We throw open the doors of our clothes closets every morning and choose what we will wear. Some choices we make are not as life-changing as others, but choose we must. And knowing what and how to choose is an essential skill to learn. Well, in our study of Jesus' talk on the hillside, we have discovered that Jesus taught constantly about the choices those who follow him need to make. And much like Collins discovered in his research of great companies, the way of Jesus in comparison to the other teachers of his day made for some provocative surprises, especially in matters of character, influence, righteousness, devotion, and ambition. However, Jesus understood that life takes on a strength that will result in great capacity according to the choices that we make. So it should not be a surprise as we look at the concluding section of his talk to discover Jesus once again address, addresses the matter of choice. Now, although this last section of Jesus' teaching may appear to be a mixture of unrelated thoughts, there is one theme that emerges in chapter 7. Jesus is talking about making decisions that build redemptive relationships with God and with those around us. And so he tells us to choose against fault-finding, to ask God for his goodness to abound in our lives with persistent faith, to make the choice of obedience to God, to guard against faking it as a Christ follower, and to choose wisely the foundational values on which we build our lives, realizing that our eternal destinies lie in the balance. To choose the way that Jesus sets out for us will mean taking the road less traveled, 
For Jesus says, the gateway to life is small, and the road is narrow. Only a few ever find it. Plainly, in the mind of Jesus, the great choice for us to make is to enter through the gateway of his teaching and walk in the narrow way. This will lead to a quality of life reserved for the few who base their decision-making on doing God's will. The first matter that Jesus tackles is pointing fingers in judgment of others. Do not judge, or you too will be judged, Jesus stated. Now, Jesus helps us to choose greatly by telling us to avoid fault-finding. It seems to me that it's just a natural inclination for us to be critical and judgmental. Our default position as humans is to find fault. It happens in marriages, in families, in the workplace, among friends, in the team locker room, and at church. We look at others and we develop resentments toward them that destroy relationships. A while ago, I I read of a husband who became terribly bothered by the fact that his wife never refilled the ice cube tray. Every time he went to get ice for a drink, the tray was empty. He discovered that it took seven seconds to fill the tray and put it in the freezer. He just couldn't figure out how his wife could be so thoughtless as to neglect to take this little bit of time to fill the tray. Well, one night, moved by a sudden romantic compulsion to express her love for him, his wife stated that she would love him forever. He responded by saying that he would settle for seven seconds. When she asked what he meant, he explained about the ice cube tray. Later, he came to realize the immaturity of his comments. If it takes my wife seven seconds to fill the ice cube trays, he thought, how long does it take me? Seven seconds, naturally. And the question was piercing. Is my love really so shallow that I would seriously resent my life putting me out for seven seconds worth of work? After all she has done for me and committed to me, am I so immature that I grow angry with seven extra seconds of labor? Jesus puts the whole matter of fault-finding in perspective when he states, And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log from your own eye. Then perhaps you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. The problem with a critical, judgmental attitude is that it does not take into account the greatness of your own moral and ethical breakdowns before God. I was raised in a family where negative, critical comments were not tolerated. I remember clearly my father telling me that every time I pointed a finger at someone, three fingers pointed back at me. Try it. When you point, three fingers are always pointing back to you. In other words, look at your own issues before you start pointing at others. So I got to the point where I was going like this. (laughs) Not really. This was a simple illustration, though, to me. And and every time I find myself finger-pointing, my father's words always come back to me. Jesus calls fault-finding hypocritical. 
Now, the word hypocrite, you may recall from previous talks, were used to describe players in the Greek theater who would put on various masks as they were playing different characters in the, in, in the play. Jesus is saying that to jump all over others for their failures while not facing up to your own shortcomings is equivalent to hiding behind a mask and failing to face up to your own reality. There is no authenticity to that kind of conduct. Interestingly, we often hide behind masks to cover up our own feelings of inadequacy and failure. So here's the way it is. If you are intent on being critical, fault-finding, and judgmental, Jesus states that you can expect to receive the same treatment. For in the same way you judge others, he stated, you will be judged. A critical spirit has a way of boomeranging, and worse still, don't expect God to cut you any slack in his judgment of you. In essence, Jesus is instructing you to rethink your life from the perspective of how you would want God to respond to you. Now, having said that, Jesus is not suggesting that we take a hands-off approach when we see our friends and family members getting themselves into all kinds of trouble because of bad choices. He is not promoting a careless attitude about the well-being of others. There is a legitimate time for speaking truth into people's lives and confronting them with their failing behavior. However, we must ensure that our motive is to restore and not to condemn. And so the Apostle Paul gives this helpful instruction. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Our foremost responsibility as Christ followers is to bring restoration and healing, not condemnation or judgment. Well, moving on, it would appear that there is little connection between Jesus' warning to avoid fault-finding and what he goes on to talk about next. He moves from speaking about inappropriate judging to asking the Father for good gifts. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Here Jesus explains the great choice of asking God with persistent faith. Now the link between what Jesus has said, has just said and what he is now saying, I think, lies in the understanding that the application of the principles not to judge, yet to be able to evaluate others with spiritual wisdom and integrity, comes from asking God. Comes through prayer. It is through the expectation of God's empowering that we will be able to respond to others in a way that reflects God's character. Now, the verb tense of the words ask, seek, and knock, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, points to this activity going on and on. And so the New Living Translation of the Bible explains the text in this way. Keep on asking and you will be given what you ask for. Keep on looking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. The focus of our prayers, as defined by the context of Jesus' statement, is to see God's mission fulfilled in the lives of others. We don't judge because that's God's job. 
Rather, we pray that we may be honest with ourselves before God, that God will enable us to be lovers of truth, and that God will help us to respond to people with holy attitudes that promote His purposes for their lives. Essentially, it is Jesus' intent that His followers practice routine obedience from the heart to all that He has taught. For this to happen requires constant asking, constant seeking, and constant knocking on heaven's door. Often Jesus' statement on ask, seek, knock is taken to be an invitation for us to obtain from God what promotes our personal well-being. The good gifts that God attributes to the Heavenly Father are seen as meeting our needs. And there's some truth to that. However, there is more to prayer than simply requesting God's provision for our lives. It is interesting to note that Jesus' invitation to persist in prayer is sandwiched between his warning against finding fault and the introduction of what has become known to us as the golden rule. This placement of Jesus' teaching on prayer should not be lost on us. Besides, Jesus introduces the golden rule with the word so or therefore. And whenever interpreting what the Bible says, it is important to pay attention to the words so or therefore because they are connecting words. They point to a summation or a conclusion from what has just been said. And so Jesus says to his followers, so in everything, do to others what you will have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The persistent faith prayers that Jesus calls us to make are focused on the advancement of God's kingdom values rather than our own personal needs. They are to be more missional in their content than consumer-driven. Our prayers are not to be a wish list of personal requests, but a commitment to pray God's mission on earth into reality. Praying this way radically transforms our focus. It moves us beyond praying with what's in it for me position to let's advance God's purposes and ask Him to extend His kingdom throughout the entire world perspective. It calls us to persist in prayer for a greater cause and to believe that God will accomplish His will on earth just as He does in heaven. It will change how we look at people and why God has placed us on this planet. Now I find Jesus' admonition to keep on asking and to keep on seeking and to keep on knocking and requesting that God's truth reign in me and in others to be a constant challenge, honestly. I'm not able to say that I routinely reflect God's perspective in responding to people, whether it be my, my wife or with those around me. I can easily miss opportunities to live with God's mission in mind. I become so caught up in my own personal agenda, getting my interests met and my desires fulfilled, that I just charge by people without acknowledging their presence and perhaps their needs. And so I keep on asking God to help me get it when it comes to living out His mission in this world. And I don't intend to stop asking and seeking and knocking because I am convinced in the deepest part of my being that God is on a mission and he invites me to join him in its fulfillment. This requires that I ask God with persistent faith to help me see the opportunities he provides and the open doors for me to present his truth in a restorative manner with those that I meet. 
It means that my personal requests, and I'm urged by Jesus to pray for my daily needs, are made with the attitude that to receive God's good gifts means I use them to extend His will on earth. In short, I am constantly grappling with the challenge to rethink my life in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is open to each and every person. To pray in this way shows an acceptance of what Jesus identifies as making the choice of a lifetime, choosing our life's pathway wise. And so the practice of routine obedience from the heart is the concluding and closing point of Jesus' hillside talk. In wrapping up his talk, Jesus presents four contrasting subcultures that if not guarded against can undo the good life that he is inviting us into. Clearly, Jesus understands that people will try every imaginable way possible to avoid simply doing the things he has said and knows to be best. And so, he points to the way we must choose so that we do not miss entering into a right positioning with God and with one another. Jesus invites us to follow the road less traveled. Enter through the narrow gate, he says. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Although there are definite references in Jesus' words here to our eternal destinies, there is much more than where we will spend eternity contained in Jesus' admonition to us here. There is a correct way to enter into the life we all would be better off to live. To enter this life-giving community that Jesus is presenting means going through the narrow gate. The gate Jesus has in mind is giving obedience to his teaching and acceptance of his place as the one who brings us into a right standing with God. Now later... On in, in, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, actually, G uh, Jesus identifies himself as the gate through whom those who desire fullness of life here and the hope of eternal life in the future must enter. He would then further declare, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the exclusiveness of Jesus' words confront the current world mood that rejects the idea of absolutism. To assert that there is only one way to God shocks the mindset of postmoderns as well as contradicts other major religious belief systems. Yet this is what Jesus declares to be the case. He makes the declaration that to follow after him will result in taking the road less traveled because it means choosing against the broader way of popular opinion. In his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, The Absolute Claims of the Christian Message, Rabbi Zacharias, who came out of an Eastern religious background to embrace the Christian faith, tells of his personal journey to accept the exclusive claims of Jesus. He writes, I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. I have remained with him because there is no other way I wish to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. I came to him as a stranger. I remain with him in the most intimate of friendships. I came to him unsure about the future. I remain with him certain about my destiny. I came amid the thunderous cries of a culture that has 330 million deities. 
I remain with him knowing that truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth, by definition, excludes. Jesus warns against letting anyone mislead you on this matter. There are those who would tell you that there may be many ways to God, that the important thing is to do good and live by a moral code that promotes the well-being of others. And this all sounds good and is worthwhile pursuing, but in the end, it leads to unworthy pursuits. Because the broad way is doing things my way, but expecting the outcomes that Jesus presents to us. I like the way Eugene Peterson sums up the teaching of Jesus on this matter. He writes, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to life, the way to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Well, besides choosing the right way, Jesus calls for choosing well who you will follow. We are to accept no substitutes. Jesus points out that there are vicious wolves disguised as harmless sheep. They present themselves as believable, even using the right words and replicating signs of being a devout Christ follower, but inwardly their show is all about power and popularity. So how do you go about identifying these false teachers? Well, Jesus gives this reference check on those who misrepresent the essence of his teaching. He writes, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. The fruit of the good tree is obedience, which comes from being changed from the inside out through fellowship with Jesus. The wolf in sheep's clothing is the one who tries to fake discipleship by outward deeds. But then inward realities take over and expose the truth about them. Those to be trusted actually decide to do what Jesus taught and show themselves to be great by these choices. Their life consists of more than words and actions. The real proof of being a fully developing Christ follower is revealed in a heart devotion that submits to Jesus' authority to establish our life's boundaries. To do this, Jesus insists, is keeping with God's will. All that Jesus has been declaring in his hillside talk is identified by him as presenting the, as representing the will of the Father. The will of the Father is for all people to believe on the one that God has sent. And so those who refer to him as Lord and yet do not do what he says are out of sync with what the will of the Father is. Now everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, will, will not everyone rather, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. The contrast of choice that Jesus presents here is for us to be more alert to doing the Father's will than having the right words to say or promoting impressive results. 
Jesus is really calling us to choose to step into the flow of God's ways, to evaluate life not by what we do, but by what God has done for us, and then to settle comfortably and confidently into God's unyielding love. Which brings us now to the last contrasting choice that Jesus presents. Choose to build your life on solid rock. Jesus tells a story about wise and foolish builders as an illustrative challenge to how we build our lives. He he states, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it has its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. In July 1996, torrential thunderstorms ripped through Quebec, dumping 8 inches, 203 millimeters of water in less than 24 hours. The heavy rains caused rivers to overflow their banks, resulting in flash floods. The little white house of Chicoutimi became a national symbol of withstanding the devastation of the floodwaters, which took the lives of seven people, destroyed almost 500 homes, and leveled an entire commercial district in in the town. Today, the house stands tall, a miracle by some people's standards, because it was built on a solid rock foundation. Jesus calls us to build our lives on the bedrock of his truth. He tells us not to miss out on making the choices that will lead to a higher return. We are to stand firm on the words that he has spoken, even though it may be unpopular and lead to a troubled path. However, it is the life that is built firmly on what Jesus says that will stand tall during the trials and storms of life and find security in God's kingdom. And with this call to choose wisely, Jesus ends his talk. Life becomes forever great when the choices you make embrace the teachings of Jesus as the essential truth by which to live. And so the call comes to you to choose, to make your choice a choice that will change you from the inside out and reshape the trajectory of your life forever. I just have to believe that there are those of you here today who have reached the point of needing to make a decision about whose lead you will follow, the lead of Jesus or continuing to do life your own way. The choice is simple, really. There are only two possibilities. However, the consequences are enormous. Jesus lays it out clearly, and I've tried my best to explain to you what they are. But only you can make that choice. Saying yes to Jesus and choosing to follow his lead will give you hope for a lifetime and secure your eternal well-being. This yes involves saying no to acts of disobedience against God and self-righteous excuses for failing to live under his authority. It calls for the sincere confession of your need for God's forgiveness and the invitation for Jesus to become the ruling authority in your life. It means listening to what God is saying to you now, 
how he is prompting you to respond in your heart and then choosing wisely. But choose, you must. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we have considered these words of Jesus, they shake us up in many ways because they are words that don't always sync with how we think. But they are the words that resonate your truth to us. And so I pray that you will help us to come to an understanding that these words of Jesus are not intended to bind us, but to free us, to release us into becoming all that you intend us to be. And so I pray that you will help us in our choosing, to choose wisely, to choose in accordance with what Jesus has said to us, to take our stand and to say, I will follow. I will follow Jesus and be obedient to all that he instructs us through his words, through his teachings. And I know that if that decision is made, that there will come a transforming presence of your spirit among us that will enable us to be routine in our obedience to you because it comes out of a deep, deep love for who you are and for how you have entered into our experience in order to give us life and life to the full. And so we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've asked the worship team to lead us in a concluding song. It's a kind of an old song, a song that some of you may have sung many, many years ago like me. But I think it's a song that kind of wraps up what we've been talking about here as we've been looking at the essential Jesus and what it means for us to say that uh, we're on board with him, we're on side with him. It means that we will follow him. Let's stand and sing together.
Matthew gives this concluding commentary on Jesus' teaching. He writes, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their other teachers of the law. Although Jesus addressed his followers, as we talked about, as the primary recipients of his teaching at the beginning of his talk, by the end, the crowd had become fully engaged. And we discover that Jesus has masterfully woven his mission to seek and save what was lost into his teaching. He invites those in the crowd to step away from the pull of popular thinking to identify with God's kingdom values and at the same time gives a lesson to his followers, to his disciples. The strategy of Jesus was to embrace the crowds and love them into the center of God's plan and purpose for their lives. And his strategy remains the same today. And so as a church community, we must commit ourselves to Jesus' approach by embracing those who are away from God and loving them with the full measure of Jesus' love, by living out Jesus' uncommon teaching in the midst of broad-based ideologies, and by becoming lifelong learners of the truth that gives life to the world. When we align ourselves with this direction, we have chosen a great path, because this is Jesus' way. And so let us be the church wherever we are. And let us receive the fullness of the presence and power and provision of the only true and wise God so that we become filled with faith and hope and love and be Jesus to this community. Amen. God be with you.